Welcome to the Script and Style Show, the web show where we talk about web development with the people that make it happen. Today's episode is brought to you by TrackJS JavaScript Error Monitoring. Know when errors hit your website with the context to find and fix bugs fast with TrackJS. Start your free trial today at trackjs.com. Hey everyone, welcome to Script and Style, the web show where we talk about web development and the people that make it happen. I'm Todd Gardner from TrackJS JavaScript Error Monitoring and my co-host David Walsh, creator of the popular blog, davidwalsh.name. How's it going today, David? Good, but not as good as you, apparently. Hearing about your lunch, it sounded pretty awesome. Yeah, uh, the uh, the social networks today told me that it was National Cheeseburger Day, and so I felt the need to go downtown and uh, and find myself a cheeseburger and a couple of beers, and it was a good lunch. It was a good lunch. Okay, so what do you get on your burger? What's your – are you like – do you spice it up, or are you just – Keep well, it, it depends. Today, today I got like the special burger that they built for today, which was um, it was a it was a fifty fifty mix of like bacon and ground chuck. So it was like a really juicy burger to begin with, and then they'd put like this blend of like Swiss cheese with um, ghost peppers in it, and so it was oh. like a really spicy cheese oh. with like sweet pickles and like oh, it was it was excellent. It was excellent. Not not a not a traditional burger maybe, but it was it was. Fully enjoyable. Fully enjoyable. Were you sweating a bit? A little bit. That's that's why I needed two beers. It wasn't it wasn't that I wanted to have two beers, it's that I needed to have two beers. <laughs> so it wasn't because you didn't want to deal with me. So I, I'm gonna say something controversial coming from Wisconsinite. I'm way more for burgers than I am brats. I might need to go into hiding after this, but it's like a, like a juicy burger is so much better than whatever they stuff into the casing of what they call a brat. I don't know. I feel like maybe you just haven't had the right brat. I like chorizo. Chorizo solid. Chorizo solid. But, but like, it's not the same thing. It's not the, I mean. And, and I'm thankful it's not the same thing because chorizo is way better. But I'm all for a good juicy burger. So I'm glad that you went out and did that. I'm going to do that later. You totally should. But we have a guest today. Enough we about do. that. We Who's do. our guest today? Kyle Simpson, also known as Getify. Also known as You Don't Know JS. <laughs> well, you don't have to insult me, but yes. <laughs> um, so Kyle Simpson is a well-known JavaScript developer, evangelist, conference speaker, um, college football fan, I'm now told. Yes, yes. Very um, <laughs> He authored the You Don't Know JS series, which I was so, um, what's the word, proud to write um, one of the forewords to. That was really cool. Um, you're also an O'Reilly partner. We were partners of O'Reilly at the same time, as well as the creator of popular JavaScript libraries like LabJS was the first loader that my blog used. And a sequence, which you wrote a few blog posts about on my blog. Thank you very much for that. Um, and you're currently working on Cath and Facey, as well as DevGo. And we'll get to those in a second. But Kyle, how are you doing? I'm great. And thanks, guys. I appreciate David and Todd, both of you guys having me on. Uh, it's a fantastic podcast, so it's an honor to be here. Thank you. So, Todd, let's welcome to the show with the, with the usual question. All right. So, 
as is tradition with all of our guests, we'd like to know a little bit about your background. Where did you come from? How did you get into this, this crazy world of, of web development? Um, and so we'd like to know as, as a superhero of, you know, web J or web development, what is your origin story? All right, I'll I'll give you a two-part origin story, so I'll split this in half. Part one and part two. Part one of the origin story <laughs> is all the way back in 1990. Uh, I was 10 or 11 years old back then, and uh, I was hanging out at a friend's house, and we were playing video games. We went into the den where his dad was working on a computer, and he was, you know, click-click-clicking, typing away at a, at a keyboard, and we wanted to know what he was doing, so we just started peppering him with questions about, you know, what are you doing and how does that work? And he kind of described this idea of computer programming. Um, and I, I don't even remember the conversation, honestly. I just remember that we were curious. But he said, hold on just a moment. And he click, click, clicked for like about a minute. And then he hit the enter key. And a blue. this was in the days of DOS. This is pre-Windows. Uh, a blue ASCII screen comes up with a gray box in the middle and my name in it. And I was completely hooked. The idea that he could type a few things and make that computer print my name in the middle of the screen was just the coolest thing I'd ever seen. Um, way better than any of the video games. And of course, I like everybody, as soon as you figure out programming, you're like, okay, what game can I go make with this? Right. So me and my friend were like, we're determined to go make our own video games. And um, so that's how I got into programming. And I'm one of those rare folks that, you know, at the age of 10 or whatever, 11, I said, that's what I want to do, and I followed through with it. I kept doing it. Uh, I did that all the way through high school. I got a CS degree, became a programmer. So that's part one of the origin story. And I, I did start working as a developer. Um, that was in the late 90s, and the rise of the web was happening. And so it was a good time to be a web developer. And uh, I had worked on uh, a lot of different stacks, but had found that I was enjoying JavaScript a lot. And so part two of the origin story is how I really doubled down on JavaScript. And that's in part because there were jobs there and I made an early bet that there was going to be a thing like a JavaScript developer. I, some people listening here don't even remember a time when that wasn't a job title. Uh, you were a webmaster <laughs> or something like that. But I, I made an early bet that there was going to be a thing like JavaScript developer, that that was going to be a specialty that people cared about. And so I had, you know, in 2006, 2007, really doubled down on learning it and had gotten to the point where I felt pretty, pretty solid with JavaScript and was, was then speaking about it at conferences. That was 2009. I was doing open source projects. So we fast forward to 2011 and, um, I interviewed at a company called Twitter. Some of you may have heard of it. And uh, I knew several people on the team and they were saying, hey, we want you to uh, come join this team. It sounds like you're great. You obviously know JavaScript, so let's have you come join this, uh, this team. And so I flew up there and did an interview and was real jazzed. It seemed like it went well. And then I never heard anything for like three weeks. And I was like, what? Uh, you know, I thought everything was great and then didn't. So when I contacted their HR department, their recruiters, and I said, you know, I took an entire day off of work to fly up there. Um, I feel like I deserve at least some kind of, you know, statement of what happened or what was a mismatch or whatever. 
not just this usual brush off that a lot of, you know, a lot of candidates get. And they didn't want to give me anything. They gave me the typical thing, but I pushed the issue several times in email and I said, no, I, I, I deserve it. Um, I know people on the team who said they liked me, so there must be some reason. And I feel like I deserve to know what that reason was. So after about a week of pushing on them, the HR person came back and said, one of the interviewers uh, came back and said that he didn't really think you knew much JavaScript. Um, <laughs> and, and I had your reaction. I, I, I started laughing at the HR person. Um, not in an egotistical sense, but like of all the possible things that could have been wrong, there's <laughs> plenty of my flaws, plenty of things that they could find to criticize about me, but it felt like criticizing me being all in on JavaScript was not one of them. And so that phrase stuck with me. And um, that is one of the reasons why I decided to write the You Don't Know JS book series was because I was told that I didn't know JavaScript. And so I determined to go solve that problem, not only for myself, but for other people. Um, so there's part two of the origin story. That's how I became a writer and a teacher about JavaScript is in, at least in part, thanks to the HR department at Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. Th thank you, Twitter, for that, <laughs> that amazing like story of HR ineptitude. <laughs> Oh, we could do a whole show just on that. <laughs> All right, but we shouldn't do that. That although it would be fun, we should not do that. That would get too many people into trouble. So instead, let's talk about JavaScript. So you said in your origin that you chose JavaScript. You saw JavaScript way back in like 2005, 2006. Is like this was going to be, this was going to be huge. What made you think that? Like, what? Why did you? Why did you make those moves when you did? That's a good question. So actually, the, my, my initial exposure to JavaScript was back in 1998. So it was created in 95. First time I saw it was in 98. I started writing web pages in 1999. I did some, some web development in college. I worked for uh, uh, at my university, um, which was the University of Oklahoma. Go Sooners. Um, <laughs> I worked for... Uh, I worked for this student-led, the first um, completely student-built and student-led um, student portal. Um, we built it and ran it entirely. The university let us do that. We did, we, we did the first online elections at any camp, major campus in the United States. Uh, so I was part of those early efforts, and I'd seen a lot of JavaScript in those days. But to be quite honest with you, I didn't really take JavaScript that seriously, um, as most people didn't. So it wasn't until 2003, 4, 5, 6, when you started to see the rise of JavaScript frameworks. Um, that was when at least those of us that were paying attention were saying, if you can write something at that scale in JavaScript, then this deserves to be treated uh, like a first-class citizen. I know, David, uh, you, you had experience way back in the day with, with MooTools, um, my first exposure, the very first framework I ever had exposure on, I was working on a website designed for an airline, and we had to put a calendar widget on there, and we used the uh, Scriptaculous calendar widget and dropped it on a web page. I think this is like 2006 or something. And so, I, you know, that was my first exposure to other people treating JavaScript really seriously. And I was enthralled by that because I knew programming. I, at that point, had a, a CS degree, a CS background. 
but I hadn't really <clears throat> thought that JavaScript could be that. And I, I started digging in. First thing I ever opened was the jQuery source code. And the first thing I saw was that dollar sign symbol. And I was like, what magic is this? Because I didn't even know that dollar sign was a valid JavaScript identifier character at the time. And, and I was like, how does it work? And how does the chaining work and all? And I just devoured that source code and tried to replicate it. That's how I decided somebody needs to know how this works and somebody at large needs to be responsible for helping the rest of the community figure it out. And it was around that same time, I think 2007 or maybe eight, when Doug Crockford released his famous The Good Parts. And it's right at that moment struck me really wrong to say that the way you ought to learn JavaScript is to just learn this small little portion of it. Because I was already hooked on wanting to understand all the ins and outs of the language. And I felt like other people should want that too. And then I saw everybody else around me saying, no, 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 just just learn this small little subset or whatever. So, uh, you know, and, and we, we owe a huge debt of gratitude to Crockford for writing that book because without it, none of us would have JavaScript jobs. Um, it was not, it was not going to take off the way that it, it did if he hadn't gotten such a larger cross section of the developer community to give it a second chance, if you will. But that's a double edged sword because it taught a bunch of people, oh, you don't really need to know the whole language only just enough to, you know, drop in a plugin and get it done. So, well, like, so sort of in those, those same days, I we're all dinosaurs here, so I, I can we I can talk like this. But, um, like, in the time frame that you're talking about, right? The main issue and the reason, one of the big reasons that JavaScript frameworks rose up is that um, I don't want I don't know if to blame it on browsers or the spec itself, but things weren't changing, mm. right? You know, like Internet Explorer had dominance for like a decade, and nothing really happened with the JavaScript language, right? And so when we learned that we could abuse XHR to, <laughs> to do these AJAX requests and such, um, you know, the frameworks pushed us forward from a very low subset of things up onto um, these, you know, what we have now. Um, and, and mobile was also a, a big thrust forward for JavaScript. But my question is, with you having been around JavaScript for this long and having loved it this long, how do you feel about the trajectory that the language is on now? Like I said, it didn't move for a long time, but once mobile started coming out and I'd like to think that frameworks started pushing things forward, like, do you think we're, are we doing too much? Are we still not moving fast enough? Like what is your take on, on the, the quickness that the language is moving? Uh, it's a fantastic question. And to just fill in a little bit more of historical detail there, um, you said, I don't know who to blame. Do we blame the browsers? Do we blame the spec? There's plenty of blame to go around. And I think if we were to bring somebody like a Brendan Icon, he'd probably say the same thing, right? There's, there's a whole lot of reasons that conspired. Um, in the same time frame, which I think many people now look back and refer to as the dark ages of the web, but we're talking about <laughs> 2005 to 2008, uh, nine, something like that, when Chrome first came out, those were really the dark ages of the web. Maybe go back to 2003 and, and include, 
you know, pre Firefox and stuff, but like <clears throat> those were the days when the web was entirely dictated by the whims of some large corporation. And the only large corporation that really had a big say so at that point was Microsoft. And um, at the same time that there were political struggles on what would happen with JavaScript, we had the ES3 standard in 99. And then in 2003, we're trying to get the ES4 standard and they're basically saying, no, uh, we're not going to, we're not going to do ES4. It's, it, it was basically warring factions and they couldn't agree. So they just gave up. So at the same time that they gave up on doing anything for the future of JavaScript, at least at that time, Microsoft famously said, yeah, we think the web's probably not going to go much further than IE6. Uh, and they famously, you know, repurposed their, their human resources to other tasks and they stopped innovating in the browser space. So you have political factions who can't agree on the spec and you have the only company who can do anything about the web saying, eh, the future is probably in something else like proprietary plugins. It's no wonder that the web stagnated and almost died. And uh, so you lay that over my, my tech career. I was working uh, in 2005 and, and so forth. I was working at, the com- at a company building web applications when IE55 came out. And I remember the eye-opening the eye and jaw-dropping moment when we realized in IE55 that you could do an XML HTTP request and what that meant. And so at this time, you have people like me and you know tens of millions of others, I'm sure, who are fascinated by what we can do with this tech. But the people who are running things are saying, eh, we don't really care, right? And that, that juxtaposition was really unhealthy for a really long time. And it led to people jumping onto the Flash ship. And it led to people jumping onto the Java plugin and later into Silverlight and ActiveX and all these other answers for um, for how the web could move forward when there wasn't just one corporation running it. And thankfully, there were some other people who said, we should go start the Firefox browser. And there were some other people like at Google that said, we can build a browser called Chrome. And there were some, you know, people that said, hey, we should put a browser on Mac devices and we should go build an iPhone and have web be at the center of what the iPhone is going to be. Thankfully, those people had a vision for something different than that proprietary plug-in world that it seemed like we were destined for. And so the resurgence of the web, when it reemerged from the dark ages in 2009, 2010, it came in with a vengeance and people said, man, we've got a lot of catching up to do. So they had to make up a lot of ground with the JavaScript spec and they had to make up a lot of ground with the technology that was driving it. So we got the browser wars and performance was the big thing. I mean, Chrome was basically founded to say, we can do web performance better. Let us show you how how to build a JavaScript engine that can do it more efficiently. And everybody else jumped on board. And that is, so profoundly important to what we do today that they did that back at that time. And they said, let's go and do that. So when you take that historical perspective into account, and then you ask what's happening with the web today, what many people are referring to when they refer to the progress or the rate of change of JavaScript, they, they label it as 
exhaustion or they label it as fatigue. Uh, JavaScript fatigue is that famous phrase that comes around. Um, so my perspective is that we had a tremendous amount of time to make up for. And so it's understandable that there was a lot of pent up, you know, angst and anxiousness to push JavaScript when it really shouldn't have needed that much effort, <laughs> but we had to because there was such a long period of time where all these huge macro level forces were conspiring against that advancement. Now, the other layer that I'll put on top of that, a personal layer, is, as I was just referring to a little while ago, one of the things that has troubled me almost for the entire time that I've been in JavaScript is this dueling force of, hey, developers should know their tools and they should take pride in their craft. If you asked a C++ developer, for example, have you read the spec? 99 out of 100 of them are going to raise their hands. But when you ask a JavaScript group of JavaScript developers, one out of 100 are going to raise their hands and say they've read any meaningful part of our, our spec. And so one of the reasons why I think we have fatigue over the rate of change is because we've kind of convinced ourselves that JavaScript ought to be easy and simple. And that doesn't fit at all with the demands that have been placed on JavaScript by such a wide constituency. The demands to put 60 frames per second 3D rendering in the browser and the demands to have JavaScript running in light bulbs and robots and watches and TVs and refrigerators and all these other demands that are pulling JavaScript far beyond anything that Brendan ever could have imagined. Um, it doesn't fit to think about JavaScript as this, oh, I should be able to glance at it and immediately know it. JavaScript is far more sophisticated than most things that developers could set about to learn right now. When you consider the entire ecosystem, when you consider the language, when you consider all of those constituencies. And so what's really broken here, I think, is that it's our expectation that we should be able to just read a quick little, you know, release notes and okay, I got it. I know all the new st JavaScript stuff. Every time JavaScript releases a new spec, every one of us should be responding with, wow, there's a bunch more that I need to learn. And I need to go find the, all the blogs and all the books and all the online courses I can to learn all that new stuff. But instead we take it as, oh my God, you know, somebody moved my cheese. I just thought I had it figured out and now they've changed it. That's an attitude problem. And it's one of the things that I've kind of spent my career trying to fight, trying to inspire people that you should approach this as it's exciting as an opportunity to always have some new thing to learn. So when people ask me what's, the, what's happening with the pace of JavaScript, what's happening with the changes, there are clearly things that I'm concerned about. Uh, there are many things that I disagree with. Um, but one of the things that I'm not concerned about is that JavaScript has a bright future with lots of evolution ahead. The future of JavaScript is far longer than the past of JavaScript, as far as I'm concerned. That's why I think it continues to be a really good bet. And I think, I think the best way to make that bet is to center your perspective around continued education. So I'm, 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 I'm a teacher, so I'm biased in that way. But I, I think that's the way to deal with the fatigue, if you will. One of the things that I, that I was thinking about um, during that, that answer was you said how the, the, 
the uses of JavaScript have been expanding. And like we're using it in light bulbs and we're using it in electronics. We're using it in all these places. Isn't part of the reason why we did that because the um, learning curve of JavaScript is so much simpler than other technologies? Like when, when you go to say, I want to build bot robots, what language am I going to do? JavaScript isn't, you know, it wasn't at the time some decisions were made, it wasn't part of that community, right? But people decided let's use it for that because it's easy. And so is it a bit of a victim of its own successor or of its own trait? I would take issue with that. I, I mean, I can't speak for everybody, obviously. So I'm, I, it, it is undoubtable and indisputable that what you're saying certainly was on the minds of some people. Um, it, it must have been. But I would take issue with the premise that what is good about JavaScript is that it's easy to learn. That isn't why any salient argument could ever have been made to put JavaScript in some other environment to, to put it in some other kind of platform. The real argument behind why JavaScript is there are some design decisions that were made that many people think were mistakes, but I consider to be some accidental genius. It took a long time for people to think that some of the stuff that you know, Newton and, uh, and, you know, uh, Einstein and others were proposing was true. And in some cases, long after their death, I think long after Brendan Eich has come and gone, we're going to be looking back on those early design decisions that he made. And instead of saying for the, you know, trillionth time, Oh, what a dumb design. I think we're going to be saying, that was brilliant. And we couldn't have even possibly foreseen why that would be. And so I think when we say easy to learn, I would twist that and say, I think one of JavaScript's strengths is its approachability. That doesn't make it easy to learn. It makes it easier to comprehend as you're learning. It has a layer of approachability to it that I don't think all languages have. He designed it that way, and the early folks that designed JavaScript designed it in that way because they were always playing catch-up. The perception that it was this dumb kid brother was very persistent. And so they needed to, almost in a marketing sense, be more palatable to people. That is not the same thing as it's easy to learn. It's the, it's the equivalent of the first thing that you learn comes more naturally to you. There is actually a much wider swath of things to learn in JavaScript than I would say even in C++. I think JavaScript is much more challenging to learn when you consider the entire breadth of it. But your first steps into JavaScript are far more natural and reasonable. That's one of its strengths. Another one of its strengths, one of its design decisions, was it didn't force you to choose a paradigm. If you pick Java, you have to pick the class-oriented paradigm. There's just almost no other option. Yeah, I know there's like some tricks where you can try to be functional with Java, but I mean, Java is class oriented. Let's just, you know, face it. So many languages force you to choose paradigms and JavaScript said, let's be a lot of things to a lot of people. Let's be the first true mainstream multi-paradigm language, not only where you can pick these different paradigms, but you can mix and match them in the same program as is appropriate to the task. That's an ultimately pragmatic um, perspective on the design. And I think um, the biggest reason 
why you pick JavaScript is not, hey, JavaScript is easy to learn or even that it's easy to approach or even that we have all of this freedom. The biggest reason why you pick JavaScript today and why you've been picking JavaScript for whatever platform you've been designing for the last five years, um, the biggest reason is because it is the only language that truly won the ubiquity war. Many languages tried, and many languages ended up having to answer ubiquity through closed, locked, you know, vendor lock-in. JavaScript won the ubiquity war by being at the center of the largest open platform that's ever been designed by mankind. So you would be almost remiss in any technical sense to take the option of opting in to that community and that ecosystem and that momentum, that wave of momentum that's built around JavaScript and say, oh, you know what, we're going to go build our whole other thing on this totally new deal. I mean, it, we're going to get to blockchain a little bit later, but you think about, they, they literally just announced today, I think, or just in the last day or two, that Ethereum is going to replace their internal VM with Wasm, which is JavaScript, the engine. Uh, so even if you think about blockchain, blockchain saying it's probably dumb for us to ignore if that is JavaScript. So, so I think in a larger sense, the reason why people should pick it is because it's already so ubiquitous, which means you can draw talent from a w- much wider swath. Um, you can share best practices and patterns across that. So coding for a robot and coding for a light bulb and coding for a smartwatch, coding for glasses, coding for a laptop, for a phone, and a thousand other things that I didn't mention, there's a lot of differences, but there's a lot of striking similarities. And one of the coolest things is that JavaScript, the language, is exactly the same in every one of those places. That learning investment pays off so much more broadly than any learning of any other technology that I can possibly imagine. Awesome. So just quickly, if there were, what is your, um, what would you like to see next added to JavaScript? Well, there's definitely been some important improvements in JavaScript in terms of asynchrony. Um, the latest change kind of filled in the, 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 the last missing gap, I think, in asynchrony was push-pull semantics for multi-value, and we now have that with asynchronous generators that landed in ES2018. So I think there's going to be less stress on um, maturing the asynchronous part of JavaScript as there has been for the last few years. And I think that's going to free us up to pay attention to some other areas that need to mature. Uh, One of the features that I'm particularly excited about and looking forward to is pattern matching. Um, That's being championed, I believe, by Brian Torlson, who's the editor of the spec. Um, And I'm real excited about that. And many other languages that already have that you know, there's reason to say JavaScript is missing that feature, not just that it'd be a nice to have, but that it's really kind of missing in a sense. So I I'm looking forward to that. There's a bunch of little small things that will affordances that will make things nice. But I think a big shift will be that we just got kind of, um, it's not fully finalized, but it looks like it's probably going to now hit finalization which is big int. And that was another huge thing that was missing from JavaScript was the support for big integers. We now have that, and that will probably be the predecessor to something like big decimal, 
which maybe fully replaces the IEEE 754 overlords that have uh, have hung over us for 25 years now. Um, so I think those are some really big things that are happening for the language itself um, that will fill in a lot of the gaps. Um, and increasingly, the old school complaint of JavaScript is buggy, JavaScript is slow, JavaScript is immature, JavaScript is inconsistent. The people that keep saying that are going to be increasingly sounding like the out-of-touch folks that haven't paid attention uh, to what's really happening. I think if you took an objective look at JavaScript today, you would have to admit that the maturity level of JavaScript is every bit as much as deserving of you know any of the other communities out there. We're not that dumb kid brother anymore. <laughs> so you, Okay, so you mentioned that there's going to be new features, which means there's more to teach. And moving on to you being a teacher, um, one of the things that we've asked a bunch of people is, do you think that the ecosystem around JavaScript, the tooling, makes JavaScript less approachable than it was, say, 10 years ago? Is, like, is the learning curve for JavaScript increasing too much because of everything that we're putting around it? Um, as with most things, that is an answer that is going to have two sides to it. So first and foremost, unquestionably and indisputably, we've raised the barrier to entry to JavaScript as a collective community by creating this much tooling. And I will put a personal note on that sort of anecdotally. I've been asked this before, but I, I would freely tell you that I, I deeply believe that I would not be able to get a job today if I were to go into a JavaScript job interview because JavaScript job interviews today don't really ask that much about JavaScript, the language, which is what I've spent the last decade focused on. Now JavaScript job interviews are, all right, so um, I need you to go ahead and like configure Babel and Webpack and then set this up and deliver it over this and you know, package it with this way and make sure you're using prettier and, and do you have standard in there? And Hey, we need to, you know, involve the JSX precompiler. And by the time you get all of that done, then you can write your first line of JavaScript <laughs> to show that, you know, something about the language. I know what all of those words are that I just said, but I literally to save my career, couldn't do any of what I just said. I couldn't set up any of that stuff. I don't keep up with it to that level. I don't use a lot of those things because I'm sort of old school and man, I just, I hand author my HTML pages as uncool as that sounds. Um, and so I, I think we've unquestionably raised the bar at the same time. All of that was invented for really, really good reasons by really intelligent people that had really valid problems that they were trying to solve. Um, one of the biggest things that we've done is we've said the problems that teams experience managing software at scale are so bad at scale that we need to invent all of this stuff. And then there's the trickle down effect that because Facebook started building a bunch of stuff and Google started building a bunch of stuff and Microsoft built a bunch of stuff. Well, that means that all the rest of us should be doing all those exact same things because we should all basically be treating our careers as an audition to go work 
on a team of 500 at Facebook. I don't know if that's actually the most effective thing that we should have been doing, but that's not really a criticism of the tools. The tools are fantastic. It's really more a criticism of us as a community being so excited that we go jump on these bandwagons. I literally hear people tell me that they, you know, I love this one thing about what React does for me. And then I ask them, did you ever do it without React? And they say, well, no. Then do do you even know that you could do it without React? Do you even know how hard it is? Do you even have that perspective of what React is giving you? Well, no, but somebody told me that it was just impossible to do without React. So therefore... I use React. And so it's almost like development opinion by proxy is the, is the status quo these days. And I, th- again, I, that troubles me. I want people to think. I don't care if you have my same opinions, but I want people to think for themselves rather than just doing what everybody does. So those tools were created for good reasons, but there are tools that are for use in certain scenarios and that may not make them appropriate for the vast majority of projects out there. Um, and so some of that is some self-inflicted complexity, some self-inflicted wounds. And I wish we'd take a step back and say, there are other ways to solve the problems that a medium-sized team, I would say that probably the majority of web developers work on a team of 20 or fewer people. They're not working on teams of hundreds spread across 15 time zones and four continents like Facebook is or whatever. So they're not really facing those same sorts of problems. And maybe the solutions aren't the same either. There are ways to solve the problems that your medium team of 10 has, which are real and valid. They don't necessarily need to take those same tools. And again, here's my bias. One of the most effective ways I think you could solve those problems is to go learn your tools better. Because then you'll figure out, oh, you know, hey, we what if we just did this thing entirely, you know, we'll use this style and this feature in this way, and that will communicate our ideas better. This comes back to a fundamental premise that I have as a teacher. It drives literally everything I do in open source development, teaching, speaking, all of it, which is the purpose of code is not to instruct the computer. The purpose of code is to communicate ideas with other human beings. That's not a unique idea to me. But I believe that so deeply, you could almost call that a religious belief at this point. Um, And so if we could learn our tools better and communicate our ideas more effectively in the code that we're writing, our team members will be able to more effectively manage and maintain and extend and fix our code, which means instead of having that conversation like, "Eh, it would be better if I just rewrote it, the conversation sounds a lot different. The conversation sounds like, I understand what they were doing, and I see very clearly where the bug was, and I just fixed it. That's what I would sort of at large aspire for the development community to do, and it's why I teach in the way that I do, which is, I'm not trying to teach you how to do Webpack. There's a a million great teachers out there that are teaching that stuff and have done great videos or whatever. I want you to know the tool itself, the underlying premise of JavaScript the, the zen, if you will, of how to ebb and flow with the language, because I think that will make you more effective at building the code first and more effective at maintaining it, the code that you, your, your past self or somebody else wrote. Um, and I, I think that is a way to maybe 
address the fatigue that people have, the frustration that people have over that much higher barrier to entry that we've created. So what do you, what do you see as a teacher new people to JavaScript struggle with? Well, um, setting aside those obvious things like that, um, I think one of the biggest things that JavaScript developers seem to struggle with is that they look at a language that has these multiple identities, these multiple paradigm identities, and they say, what am I supposed to make of a system that has both a strong functional closure system and also, it seems to be trying to convince me that it's a class-oriented system. <laughs> what am I supposed to make of that? And I, I don't think enough people, and I would include myself in this, I don't think enough people are effectively communicating how you navigate those different identities in the language. And so you see people doing really Frankenstein bastardized things, um, not because they are idiots, but because nobody ever showed them how to juggle those different things and how to effectively intermingle them. I, I genuinely believe this, and this makes me a heretic, but I believe you could absolutely write a program that in parts was very, very heavily functional, functional programming oriented. And in other parts, you could probably make very good use of class-oriented coding. And in other parts you ought to just do the pragmatic, simple, straight procedural programming. All three of those have their place in the same app. But we don't hear anybody talking about that. Everybody says, no, 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 you've got to be my flavor of, and, and, and most of that, frankly, is dictated by the framework you choose. If you pick this framework, they've already chosen the paradigm for you. And good luck trying to go outside of that. And so I, I think we could do ourselves a much better favor if we were to help teach in isolation those paradigms, but even more importantly than that, how to effectively navigate and weave those together to make the best program. To me, the best code is not functional or class-oriented. The best code is not React or Angular or Vue. The best code is the code that communicates its ideas most clearly. The best code is the code that is no more than what it needs and no less. It is the bare minimum to get the job done, no more, no less. Uh, that creates a smaller surface area for maintenance and bugs, creates a smaller surface area for that next new hire when you hire them on. And because you don't have any onboarding plan, you just say, go look at our code for the first two weeks. Well, if you have a smaller and more modular and simpler code base, that is a much easier task than what most people face when they join today. Um, and so I think, we can, I think we can effectively address those concerns um, if we start trying to teach people the, the different identities of the tool and, and how, to we, you know, how, to, how to sift that out um, in, in real-world applications, not just in theory. So before we jump out of teaching, I want to ask you about conference speaking because you're a prolific speaker. Um, like I said, you partnered with O'Reilly. Um, I've seen your name everywhere. How can people, when it comes to conferences, what do you recommend 
the attendee expect and how can they be successful attending a conference that you're at or, you know, any other conference? Um, I'm going to make what might sound like a, um, a controversial statement, but that's not surprising for anybody who knows me because most of my hot takes are um, <laughs> controversial. I think the least important part of any conference are the talks. As a matter of fact, I think conferences ought to do away with the talks. Not do away with them in the sense that no, no content gets presented, but the talk isn't, isn't and shouldn't be the focal point of the experience. The reason that we should be gathering together in these giant expo halls is not to sit quietly in a dark room while one person stands up there and goes through some animated slides. <laughs> The reason we should be gathering together, and we're missing this. I mean, I, I, it sounds silly, but we're missing the most critical thing that we could be doing, which is bringing to people together to discuss and collaborate. That term, the term that most people will, will have heard would have been the hallway track. But I don't just mean this anecdotally. I'm saying we ought to build the conference as the hallway track and get rid of all that other stuff that's distracting from the most important part. Our, our intercommunication, our interdependence, our intercollaboration with each other. Put the conference talks online in recorded form. Let people watch those for free whenever they want for three months. And then have an event where everybody gets together and discusses it and hacks on it and teaches each other and helps each other you know, go further. I, I, that's, that's the conference I'd build if I was ever going to build a conference um, because I think that's what we need to be doing. So given that I haven't built that conference and that conference doesn't exist, my advice to you is do go to some talks, do go learn some things, but don't go to a talk expecting to come away an expert. Go to a talk that you think is going to inspire you to find something to dig into a conversation with. And then immediately, right after that, don't go into the next talk. Go find somebody, maybe that was hopefully in that talk, and sit down and chat with them about it. Collaborate with them hack on some code together and try out the ideas, you know, gather a group of people around and have a big, uh, you know, Q and a discussion or, or open discussion about it. To me, that is how you're going to get more out of your conference experiences, looking for those moments of content to be inspirational that lead to collaboration with other humans. Todd, I know you feel exactly the same way, don't you? I could see it on your face. I do. I, I love everything that you just said, Kyle. I love, well, every, I love everything you just said. Um, I have, in fact, done talks at conferences about how to get stuff out of con- how to get the most out of conferences, and a lot of it echoes that. It's about engaging with people. Talks are just to get you started. Like go and go and meet new people. Spend time in the hallway track. Go and build new connections with people. I, and and I, I think that's fantastic. More co- conferences like that should exist. I, 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 I wish they would. And I wish instead of me going to do it, because I'm too busy, I wish somebody would go take that script and build it. <laughs> the problem is, is that with less structure, there's more like just general chaos of like, how do you, how do you get, you know, a company to fund sending people to an unstructured event like that? I think the companies that would fund that if we're just brainstorming here about the strategy of conference organizers and getting sponsors, I think the companies that would most want to fund an event like that are companies that want people in the community to hack on their, that company's particular tools or frameworks or, you know, APIs or whatever 
they can create those sponsored environments where people can get together and, and create little mini hackathons, if you will. To me, that seems like a natural fit is there's lots of companies that want the community to participate. Um, they just, you know, they're stuck doing it 20 people at a time running these little hackathons in every random city of the world. Why wouldn't they want to go create 30 hackathons right in the middle of a giant conference? That seems like a way more effective use of their money and time to me. So while we're on the topic of conferences and training, um, I know you've done a lot of work in that space. Uh, how can people find find information about you and the stuff that you're doing? Well, that's a good uh, good question because I hope that people are um, at least a little bit intrigued. So I will give myself a little bit of a plug. So the best way to find me is to look for Getify, G-E-T-I-F-Y, basically anywhere online. So Twitter, GitHub. That's my Gmail address. I freely give out all those things because I want people to find me. I want people to ask me, um, reach out to me in any way, shape, or form. If you're looking for me on some service and you can't find it, if you type in, and uh, literally, if you type in getify.me, which is my personal, quote-unquote, personal website, and then a forward slash, and then an at symbol, and then pick any name of some service, It'll, if I'm on that service, it'll redirect to my profile in that service. So I've tried to make it as easy as possible for people to find me uh, anywhere. What I do is I write about JavaScript. So I have the You Don't Know JS books. My latest book, uh, which we'll talk about at the end, is Functional Light JavaScript. So trying to give you a pragmatic view on functional programming in JavaScript. So go check those out. Those are on my GitHub. Um, I've got a number of projects and I teach. JavaScript for a living. So if your company would like to have me come teach, email me or tweet me. And I'd love to, you know, chat about coming and helping you with that. But uh, I just look for Getify online and you'll find me somewhere. That's great. So when, when you're doing this, this sort of thing, when you're participating and doing training, um, you've often kind of been an advocate for the web in general. And I think that's kind of been a vein in, in what you've, in the story you've told us today. Um, you're, you're kind of like an evangelist or an advocate for the web. Um, and lately you've been talking a lot about like service workers. Can you give us some details about what you've been, what you've been doing with that and and what you've been working on? When people ask me for my job title, since I'm self-employed, I get the freedom to make up whatever I want. And when (laughs) I, when I make up my own job title, it's open web evangelist which is peculiar because that doesn't say anything about JavaScript specifically, but I don't think JavaScript is as interesting if you take it out of the context of what it can do. And I think one of the most powerful environments that JavaScript can be used today is on the web. So the open web platform is a natural context within which to discuss JavaScript. That means that I naturally need to be aware of what is the greater web platform doing what is HTML? What is CSS? What are they doing? And one of the biggest moves that's happened over the last few years is to move web applications out of the browser, if you will, into taking the place of real applications and devices. And that's through progressive web apps, PWAs. And I've, I've long known about the concepts that make something a PWA, like using a service worker for offline ability like using responsive web design, you know, those sorts of things. I've long known those concepts as concepts, but I decided um, a few months ago that it would be time. It would be a good time for me to actually try it myself. 
instead of it just being the theory of it, um, that I would really start building it. So I built out um, a, a progressive web app. It's not public yet because to launch it publicly means I need to have a business model around it. And so uh, I'm still figuring that part out. Um, but, but in a bigger sense, it taught me a whole bunch about what it means to build offline and build accessible and build responsive and build adaptive and all of that. And those are all principles that I think that live in the very DNA of what the open web is about. They're the things I think that make the web unique, unique. And they're the things that I think could make the web really have a chance to win out over the last big uh, proprietary vendor lock-in walled garden that we face, which are the app stores. All the others have died and app stores still haven't. And I want app stores to die because they aren't healthy for uh, us to collaborate through. And so I think the open web is, is our best weapon um, to kill those app stores. And I don't think we have to do that in a way that makes people not be able to make money. I think you should be able to make money and you will be able to make money on the web, but to, to do so in a way that's not entirely driven by the corporate interests of one or two big companies. Um, and so that's why I put all the effort that I do into the open web uh, is because I believe it has that potential. If I think, I believe that the web is the largest platform for self-expression that humanity's ever created, maybe ever will create. And that is, with that comes a tremendous responsibility, I think. Um, so I speak often about why we need to be more inclusive and empathetic about how we work together, how we need to expand this tent of the web to be to be wider. And one of the things that I think needs to happen there is we need to stop thinking that the way that we build the web is the way that we build it for people that are sitting in San Francisco on coffee shop Wi-Fi. That isn't the the only way the web is consumed. I have the privilege to travel all over the world in my capacity speaking and teaching. And most of the world that I'm in, I experience the web on 2G. I have T-Mobile here in the US and I'm privileged and fortunate that it means I get free roaming internet wherever I go in the world, but it means that I get to experience it at 2G speeds. So when I load up your website here in the U.S. and I'm one of your customers here in the United States, and then I get on a plane and I fly to Brazil, I'm still one of your customers, but now I'm experiencing this ridiculously unacceptable, subpar, almost unworkable version of, of the web's reality. And that's not just me. Two-thirds of the world's population if they ever got on the internet would experience the internet in that way or even worse. And it's not just about internet speed. It's about battery consumption. More than half of the world doesn't have free unlimited electricity the way we seem to think that we have in the first world countries. And I've been to African villages where people have their phones hanging off of telephone poles, recharging their phones all day long because that's the only electricity the village gets. And it's such low voltage that it takes all day to recharge a phone. Those people, even if they have a device that can do it, don't want you to shove every possible feature down the wire at them. That gets, uh, I think, the biggest mistake that we ever made in the web. And I think it's one that we can correct, but it's going to take a lot of work. The 
the most failed assumption and biggest mistake that we made collectively together, and I'm, I'm included because I did a lot of this for a long time, is that we made the assumption that if a user's device can do it, then they want it. And we didn't even ask them, what do you want? We didn't, we didn't build these experiences to ask users what they want. We said, no, 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 our designers, our developers, we're better equipped to decide what you want. And if your device can do it, we'll decide that that's what you want. That isn't how the web needs to be experienced, to be inclusive and empathetic. So I see my job um, in building out service worker technology and building PWAs, and I'm going to build workshop content around it and write about it. I see my job as an open web evangelist, if you will. I, I'm self-appointed, <laughs> but I see myself as in a unique position to bring more attention to that. And since I'm not an employee of Google or an employee of Microsoft, you know that my motives are not based on um, that I'm going to drive more ads if I do it this way or that I'm going to get more people to buy my devices if I do it this way. My motive is this is the most important thing that we've ever built as humanity. And we need to extend it beyond those few big population centers to all the rest of the world. And I don't think we're going to get there the way that we're currently building the web. So uh, a lot of what I'm doing is really just trying to maybe lead by example. I'm going to try to build that stuff and try to talk about it and try to encourage others to build that way as well. As a quick side note, I was briefly on a team at Mozilla um, called Wadi, and we created the Service Worker Cookbook. And we just started creating that as I had joined the team. And I had never heard of service workers before. You know, people talk about offline and, you know, application cache was the solution at the time, but application cache wasn't great. Um, <laughs> and I remember when, you know, they mentioned we're going to do the service worker thing. And I hadn't heard of it. I was like, what's that? And they pointed me to a couple of the pages on MDN and audibly, and this is like right as I joined the team in the meeting in front of everybody, I said, holy shit. <laughs> and it was like the first time that I realized that, you know, offline was really going to get this push. We were actually going to be able to do this stuff um, the right way, so to speak. Um, you know, dropping swear words your first day on the team and the meeting in front of everybody <laughs> is not the right way to do things. But, um, you know, along the lines of PWAs and service workers, what are some of the other trends that you see coming up within the next, you know, handful of years for, jo for JavaScript and PWAs in the web? I think the biggest thing that's going to happen is the UI optional revolution. Uh, for all of computing history up to this point, we've essentially assumed that there has to be a user interface to consume an application. And I think we're moving into a, a time when the UI is going to become optional and applications themselves are going to need to service lots of other paradigms for people, whether that's you know, a text, you know, a text pop-up on my smartwatch, whether it's a little uh, droplet that shows up in my smart glasses, whether it's simply the colors that change on my refrigerator to let me know that I've got items that need to be replaced. I mean, you just have to start thinking about user interface in a much more broad sense that the world becomes our user interface. Um, I think that's our next if I'm a futurist for a moment, I think that's our next big challenge is to stop thinking about the constraint of this 2D rectangle. And, and guess what? 3D glasses are not the end-all, be-all of that. That's one possible way. A lot of people think, well, 
that's the new world is we'll wear these glasses. But I think the, the new push that we're going to have to figure out collectively is how to go UI optional or rather how to think about the entire world as the UI canvas. Um, how, how you're projecting an interface or a light switch onto a wall in a, in a place where I can interact with it or something. You know, that's going to be, we have to figure out what that means. Cool. Um, so speaking of taking things in the future, you, you know, you wrote one of the very first JavaScript loaders um, <laughs> way before, you know, anybody was using them um, like they eventually got used. Right now you're working on DevGo. Is that correct? Yeah. Okay, so what is DevGo, uh, DevGo and what are you doing that's 10 years ahead of the curve? <laughs> um so I'll try to summarize it as briefly as I can with uh, an anecdote about cavemen. If we go back to the days of cavemen and we think about Billy and Jesse, Billy knows how to make fire and Jesse doesn't know how to make fire. And Jesse needs to learn. And it's quite literally a life or death struggle for Jesse because not only does he need to be able to make fire, he's got to be able to go back and teach all the other members of his family or tribe how to make fire. Um, if we were to try to an, analyze that scenario, how is Billy going to effectively teach Jesse and all the others that need to know how to make fire? If we took 2018's mindset on this, we'd say, well, clearly what Billy should do is draw a bunch of diagrams about how to make fire up on the cave wall and then just charge people an entrance fee to walk through his cave and look at the diagrams and boom, education's done. Um, but if we took a step back and said, would that be effective? We'd actually say, no, that's, that's not how you learn how to make fire. Yeah, you could learn a little bit of the knowledge about fire making from looking at some good diagrams. But um, what I'm getting at here is that our modern approach to education is that what we need to do is make more content and make more content accessible to more people and more devices. And my perspective is the content isn't the key. The key to education is relationships. Always has been, and I'm going to argue always will be. And to our detriment as a species, over the last 120 some odd years, we basically said, eh, Relationships are too hard to scale education. Let's focus on content. And I think by and large, one of the big things that we're not doing well right now is we're not educating people. We're not educating people and people are not educating themselves. The, the year of the self-learner or the age of the self-learner, I think is largely overrated. Um, and I'm also a self-learner, so I'm in that group. I don't think self-learning is the pinnacle of education. It's the exception, not the rule. The rule, the thing that was true for tens of thousands of years of human history, and what we ought to go back to, is education in the context of human communication and empathetic relationship. We'd call that mentoring or coaching today, but nobody can seem to figure out how to do that at scale. Mentoring only happens on one-on-one. -on -one. So DevGo is my answer to that. DevGo is a set of ideas about how we can create scalable mentoring relationships in the corporate workplace. In essence, I'm trying to um, upend or disrupt my own industry that I make money at right now. <laughs> I want to get rid of the way corporate education currently happens. And this is for all skills in the workplace, not just 
software development. All skills in the workplace can be more effectively taught if they're taught in the context of a mentoring relationship. And there is a way to do that at scale, but it requires much more intelligent and purpose-built tools than currently exist. So that's what DevGo is, is my attempt to go completely reform and reimagine and reshape, but actually not reinvent. I'm just going to go back to what we did for tens of thousands of years and do it effectively at scale. So that's that's my startup. That's what I'm working on. And do we get to use the magical B word? Ah, uh, blockchain. Yes, everybody. Uh, you include everybody. that word, and then investment money just falls. Right. Yes. Yeah. That's right. I have not used blockchain in any of my uh, fundraising pitches yet, because <laughs> the money that tends to come after you say the word blockchain is dumb money. <laughs> um, <laughs> Um, it's not sophisticated or intelligent. It's just based on the hype. And so I don't want that money. Um, but DevGo does have an important part of its future in blockchain. And so one of, of all these many other things that I'm pursuing over the last several months, I've been pursuing um, blockchain. Um, you can consider me a recent convert to blockchain because for a long time I was very skeptical mostly because the only thing that anybody ever talked about with blockchain was cryptocurrency. I think cryptocurrency um, is the least interesting part of blockchain, to be honest. Tell my Uh, accountant that. What's that? Tell my accountant (laughs) that. that. Yeah, I know you famously, uh, you had a bunch of uh, cryptocurrency, I think Bitcoin or whatever. So I'm sure that people that have made a success at it, you know, they, they have good reason to want that to exist. and But Lambos aside. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sorry to interrupt. Yeah. Go ahead. It's all right. Um, but I just, I think that it's um, unfortunate that cryptocurrency gets all the attention when actually the really world-changing stuff that I think we can do with blockchain is not about the currency. It's about these other usages of the tech. So in, in the shortest synopsis I can give you, the reason why blockchain is important and interesting is it allows any two entities, whether they be two companies or two people or a mixture thereof, it allows any two entities that otherwise have contrasting sets of priority. They're competitors, if you will. They don't actually want the same outcomes. So they can't trust each other. It allows those two entities to interact in a way that mutually benefits both of them but it does so in a way that is completely trustable. So it creates a DMZ, a demilitarized zone, if you will, between two untrusting parties. And in between, we create out of thin air trust. And the way we do that is math. The math behind blockchain is what we can trust. And if we can create a protocol for collaborative data sets that any two entities can say, I have a need for that data set and you have a need for that data set and we have competing interests of what we're going to do with that data set, but we can at least agree that that data set will be managed by these principles. Now, all of a sudden, we can collaborate in a way that we never would have before. I think that is the promise of blockchain and it's why blockchain is going to change the world. So I'm a recent convert to that. And in part, it's because I was facing a set of questions about something I want to do with DevGo. And it literally, I had a shower moment one morning 
last year, and I realized blockchain is how we fix that. So I set about to create a free-to-use blockchain. Um, that's a when I say free to use, meaning you don't have to pay a transaction fee to transact on it. And that's part of what I think can be the, the next future of the 4.0 of what blockchains can be is free to use blockchains that are exist for the public good, much like a Wikipedia, if you will, but with, you know, in blockchain form, those need to exist for the public good. And I'm building one of those and hope to launch it at some point. DevGo is going to use that to accomplish part of its mission of creating this completely reshaped way of tracking your education cross job. Um, and that's, um, that's why I'm interested. Of course, DevGo is also going to include um, education about blockchain. You're going to need to learn about blockchain. But um, I've, I've, I've worked with some partners in the blockchain space already. I, I built out some curriculum for uh, an online school that teaches blockchain development called Hatch. So you should check them out if you're interested in, in getting more into blockchain. But I'm, I'm a believer now, but it took me a long time to get there. So, so how does this fit into DevGo? Can you talk about the problem that you solved with it? Yeah, I can talk about it in, in a general sense. Um, one of the biggest premises that I have driving DevGo is that you should think about education as a continual process. And that means that it needs to be independent of the place that you happen to be working. Um, if you go to a job and you spend five years working there, you're undoubtedly going to learn a set of skills. And then when you go to the next job, you're going to put on your resume, those keywords, you're going to say, I learned these things. Now there'll be things that you learned at the company that are proprietary. Um, but you're still going to talk about the fact that you learned those things, even if you can't share the proprietary information. And so what we, what we have there in that sense is that there's a metadata layer on top of what we learn, which is not what we learned, but how we learned it and who we learned it from. That's a really critical piece. And it's critical that that be independent of where you work. Because if I build a platform like DevGo, and you learn some stuff while you're a Microsoft employee, and then you leave and you go to another company who uses DevGo, and your profile restarts to zero because the new company gave, you know, you have a whole new email and a whole new profile. Um, that doesn't reflect the way, that doesn't reflect reality. That education didn't, you know, leave your mind because you switched employers. So we need a way to track your educational progress independent of the company or the environment that it happens in. And so the blockchain that I'm building is going to give us, give the world <laughs> a metadata layer for how things are learned and where they're learned from. And DevGo is going to use that. How can I lie and say that I have 12 years of React experience <laughs> in this type of environment? I just need to be your mentor and, and certify you, right? That's right. We're, we're going to democratize peer-to-peer -peer certification. So, <laughs> so if Todd says you know it, then you know it. So I'm, I'm imagining I have a satellite business to... Uh, to DevGo. Dev, DevGo is going to be huge. And I'll just have the side business where you can buy certifications sure. 
from outside instructors from hey, Acme Co. Everybody has every, all developers have at one point or another worked for Acme, and Acme <laughs> taught you whatever you need to know. Hey, listen, if I'm building a blockchain, I can't control what people do with it. So <laughs> go, go do something great with it. So, do you think the blockchain? You're you're a convert. Is it? Is it going to be as revolutionary as, you know, the Lambo Toten David Walsh's of the world says it's going to be? <laughs> um, it's going to be more revolutionary than anything that we've seen yet. Um, so I'll harken back to what some of us are old enough to remember when people use the term Web 2.0. And Web 2.0 was supposed to be this new future where the web was comprised of a whole bunch of different data islands in the form of embeddable JavaScript widgets. And you don't need to build your own stuff. Just go embed the Google Maps widget and this calendar widget and this email widget and all these other things. And bam, you just have an app um, that, that came out of nowhere. That was the promise, essentially, of Web 2.0 is that third parties could collaborate through embedded JavaScript APIs. And uh, I think it's fair to say that that future was flawed and didn't happen and probably was doomed to fail um, uh, for a variety of reasons, not the least of which is the security model of the web wasn't really built for that originally. Um, but the but SharePoint's still around and kicking. It is, it is. You can definitely still make good money if you're a SharePoint developer. <laughs> um, the promise of it, though, hasn't gone away. And the need for it hasn't gone away. It's just how we're going to get there. So I'm envisioning that what blockchain is going to do, if you, if you think about it the way I just described it, which is essentially the data is the protocol and the protocol enables collaboration between mutually untrusting parties. Then what that means is that we can accomplish that vision of mashups, if you will, but mashups where the collaboration happens through those data protocols, through blockchain. I think that's what's going to happen. So I think the, the web 3.0 or the web 4.0 or whatever version you put on it is going to be that the web is going to be um, uh, just uh, a, a collection of the exchange of data through these different blockchain um, systems. We should uh, point out that we had Daniel Buckner from Microsoft um, share what what was identity um where you know blockchain is going to be huge there and he describes a lot of the stuff and agrees with you um lastly at the top we teased a couple of your current projects outside of devgo one being calf and the other being facey um i'm always excited to see what you're working on can you tell us about what those two things are those are my two latest open source libraries i built those over the last six months, 12 months, something like that. Um, and I'm trying to get those um, out there, if you will, or the awareness of them. So CAF stands for Cancelable Async Flows. It is my approach, um, which is just one of many, but it is my approach to providing a way for you to do asynchronous actions in JavaScript that are cancelable. Nice. And I think um, it's patching a pretty big missing hole right now, which is that we shipped the async await function in JavaScript and gave us no way to cancel them. And that's, that's a, that's a problem, I think. And so calf is a, an attempt to do that in a better way. Um, so if you've had issues around cancellation, or if you haven't even thought about cancellation, I'm going to tell you, you should, 
I, <laughs> I think almost every form of asynchrony that we can do in a JavaScript application needs the potential for cancellation built into it. We do so much asynchrony. Um, there's Ajax calls, which are obvious, but there's timer, timeout-based calls. We have cross-frame messaging. We have on the server side, basically the entirety of Node's APIs from file systems to databases to child. Pro- that is, I mean, that's a massive amount of asynchrony. I can't think of a single example across any of those where what I want to do, if I'm really thinking about it, is I want to make a, I want to fire off an asynchronous request and eh, I don't care how long it takes. Take as long as you want. There's always going to be a timeout. There's always going to be a length of time where I, I don't want, if that file system command has taken five minutes, then stop, right? <laughs> so we, I feel like there's this massive gap where we're doing all this asynchrony and nobody's talking about how it needs to be canceled. Um, and so CAF is, a, is an attempt to try to, to look at that. Phasey is also in the asynchronous space, but from a very different angle. Um, there is this, People know about iterators like for each, map, filter, reduce, things like that. Um, iterators are what we call eager synchronous um, in the functional programming world. So if I call a filter, it's going to go over a list of all the values that are currently there. But what if the operations that we want to do on those, those eager operations, what if those are asynchronous in nature? What if the mapping of one value to another value can't happen synchronously? It needs to make an Ajax call, for example, to get it. What we need is a form of asynchronous iteration, not like observables, which are waiting for new data to come in. So these are still eager. These are still eager iterators, but they're eager asynchronous iterators, meaning that I'm going to eagerly go over the data source, but each step of that may be asynchronous. That was a missing gap, I feel, um, where people wanted to be able to do a for each, but have it pause in between each step, for example. And you can't do that with the current set. So what Phasey is, is a very small library that lets you have eager asynchronous iterators, and it provides both serial and concurrent flavors of each of those. So you can either do a serial for each if you want each one to go. Uh, one after the other, or a concurrent for each if you want them to happen concurrently in parallel. So it's just a small set of iterators um, to allow that kind of asynchronous iteration. And we can get those at github.com slash getify. They're all on my GitHub. So uh, CAF is C-A-F and FACY is F-A-S-Y. So go look for those on my GitHub profile. Right after the show, I'm going to look at CAF because I want to figure out how you did the cancel. I'm cool. so excited. For that. It's cancellation tokens. That's the that's the uh, uh, the punchline there. Cancellation tokens are how I think it should be done. And I'll post uh, I'll post links in the show notes when we're done. I think that is uh, a good place to kind of wrap it up. Um, we're a little bit over our normal time, but I think we had a great conversation today. As per usual, we're going to go around and kind of say like one big thing that we think is our takeaway. David, what what about you? What did you think? I've been learning from Kyle for so long that it was just a pleasure to talk to him. And it's even more awesome that he's on the blockchain bandwagon. (laughs) (laughs) I'm going right to my Lambo dealer after this because Kyle says that crypto is the least interesting thing and it's the most interesting thing to me. So it must be going somewhere. Mm -hmm. But no, um, I, I also really enjoyed your 
your philosophy on education um, being not just about content, but more about relationships. And I couldn't agree with that more. How about you, Todd? What'd you learn today? I really like the nuance that Kyle pointed out around JavaScript isn't easy to learn. It's intu- or the first thing you learn is intuitive. And it makes you know taking that first step easier. But that its surface area is actually much bigger than than most other programming communities because of you know all of the variance that that can happen there. I think that's a really important distinction. Um, and I hadn't really thought about it in those terms, but I think that makes a lot of sense. Kyle, we're going to give you the last word um, about you know summarize anything you'd like to do or, or plug something if you'd like. Okay. Quickly, my, my final word here is um, I talked earlier about teaching corporate trainings. If your company would like to have me come do a corporate training, I would love to do that. So reach out to me. Best way to get me is either through Twitter or just email me, which is getify at Gmail. Um, and the last plug that I'll make is my most recent book, which I mentioned earlier, is the Functional Light JavaScript book. If you've ever been interested in functional programming but been confused by terms like monads and endofunctors, um, I'm not going to explain any of those things in the book, but what I am going to do is show you how to learn functional programming and pragmatically and and in a balanced way apply it to your JavaScript programs without all of that crazy terminology or the notation or math degree or anything like that. I'm going to try to give you a very ground-up approach. Um, and that's the aim of that book. As with all my books, you can read it for free. So check it out and see if you like it first. But it is available for sale. And I, of course, appreciate when people appreciate my work if they buy those things. Um, so definitely um, check that out. As a special um, for the listeners of this podcast, we're going to be releasing a uh, coupon code that will give you 50% off buying the Functional Light book from LeanPub. Um, so definitely go check out that coupon if you're interested. Um, so find me to come teach your corporate workshop. Find me on platforms like Front Frontend Masters. Find me on GitHub. Find me on Twitter. But most of all, go learn JavaScript. It's an investment that'll keep paying off. And I've got, you know, uh, well over a decade now of, of career proof to that. So keep going with that. And I think it'll, I think you'll be, I don't think you'll regret those investments at all, but thanks very much for having me on the show guys. It's been a lot of fun. Thank you. I I mean, I think all three of us are kind of behind that, that summary of go learn JavaScript, (laughs) go, go take training from, from, from Kyle, go read about, you know, things as David learns them on his blog and then go monitor them with with the stuff I work on. So I think we're all on the yay JavaScript (laughs) wins bank. That's awesome. (laughs) All right. Well, thank you so much for being on the show. I think we had a great show, an hour and 20 minutes. I think it's our longest yet and tons of people have already watched it. So I think it's a great success. Um, We will be back uh, next week on the 27th with our next guest. Chris Coyer is going to be joining us. That's you definitely want to go to that one. Don't listen to Mike. Go listen to Chris Coyer. <laughs> He's awesome. <laughs> so we, we will be back on the 27th. Uh, hope you, you tune in and, and check us out then. Until then, thank you so much, Kyle, for joining us. I really appreciate it. I'm Todd Gardner. I'm David Walsh. See you See later. You Thanks a lot. The Script and Style Show is recorded and produced by David Walsh and Todd Gardner. We'll see you next time on Script and Style.